Morning, church. I remember I was in a place a lot like this when someone said something to me that was, I guess it could have been one of the most complimentary things anybody's ever said to me. But for me, in that moment, it was one of the most offensive things anybody's ever said to me. I was in my home church um, in Harrodsburg, great church, um, Harrodsburg Baptist Church. Folks loved me there, nurtured me there, took care of me there. Um, and, and one person in particular who was the father of one of my friends, after some sort of a, you know how they have those events and the youth will go up and they'll tell the youth who did certain things. Like, I don't remember what I did, but I did something, got me down in front of the church and they're saying stuff. And afterwards, the folks came around and shook our hands as is the custom, Right. And when that happened, this one particular fellow walked up to me and he said to me, he said, Ryan, I have a ton of respect for you and here's why. Because you're a self-made man. And I started thinking to myself, first of all, I'm 16 years old, so I, whatever I am, I mean, it's not really a very good indication of what I'm going to be anyway. Second of all, no, I'm not. My parents love me. My parents take care of me. The folks in the church have nurtured me. God has made me whatever I am. And, you know, he had his reasons for saying that, and I appreciate the sentiment behind it. But what I would like to say this morning is that all of these crazy cliches that fly around loosely and casually might be nonsense. And I would like to propose this morning that there's... No such thing as a self-made man. You'll hear people say, everything I got, I got by myself. If we believe in a God who fashioned the universe by the creative power of his own words, how can we believe that an individual is responsible for all of his own success? You'll hear folks say, well, he just needs to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. Right? I'll just admit to you right now, I have no idea what that even means. I, I don't... The, just FYI, bootstraps are on the ground or close to it, so how in the world somebody's going to pull themselves up by them is just beyond me. Um, it's one of those word pictures that is just over my head, man. But even if it could be done, there's nobody who's capable of from start to finish receiving help only from himself. And as we begin to investigate, even in the world, like even in this place that we call the world, this place that's marked by, you know, humans trying to do their own human thing, even in this place that's marked by centuries of rebellion against God, if we investigate the real way that the world's definition of success even is accomplished, we find out some surprising things. There's a guy named Malcolm Gladwell who wrote a book called The Outliers. And in this book, he just investigates what causes success. What are the environmental factors that contribute to success? What are the personality traits that contribute to success? What are the circumstances that lend themselves to success? And here's what he found out. He started by checking out some athletes. And he went back and looked at the records of the all-star leagues of Canadian hockey players. 
Now, if you talk to anybody in Canada and you ask them, you know, what kind of system is there for figuring out who these kids are who are going to turn out to be your brightest hockey stars? They'll tell you that it's based not on who you know. It's based not on how much money you have. It's based not on what kind of family you come from. It's based on nothing but who can play hockey. From the beginning, when they're four or five years old, to the time that they're playing professionally, they would tell you that Canadian hockey is a meritocracy. Those who perform the best receive the greatest reward. But if we go back and look at the records, the craziest thing happens. If you look at the all-star rosters for high school Canadian hockey leagues, and you look at their date of birth, what you'll discover is that 75% of the people who are on that roster were born in January, February, or March. And the reason for that is that the cutoff date for playing hockey is you have to be born before January 1st. And so the kids who are born the closest to that date are the most mature kids who come into the league in kindergarten. And because they're the most mature kids in kindergarten, guess what? They're the best hockey players in kindergarten. And so they get the most attention in kindergarten. And then they go to first grade, and having received the most attention in kindergarten, guess what? They're even more better than the other kids than they were the year before. And so the next year, they get even more attention. Until when you get to the NHL, it's still a fact that the highest percentage of players are born in the first quarter of the year. So it turns out that even if we want to make success about what we accomplish and about what we end up doing, it's still not really about us. There are factors that we'll never be able to point to that contribute to what we accomplish in our lives. And take Champ, for instance, who has defined success in this Idlewood series by going and being the star of his team and getting Nike endorsements and Gatorade endorsements and making all this money, and therefore it's going to be fine if he misses church one Sunday. Is it fine if he misses church one Sunday? Sure. But Champ, success is still not about what you accomplish in your life. And as we think about success as a potential idol in our lives, as we think about success as something that we would place before God, as we think about success as something that we would value too highly or think about wrongly, here's what I want to propose. I want to propose that our vision of success becomes idolatrous, not because of what our vision of success is, but because of who our vision of success is. And I've shared this with the youth at their liftoff event, and I've shared it in my Sunday night Bible study, just this thought that I've had a lot, and this question that I've asked myself that has begun to change my life. I hadn't quite done it yet. And that may begin to change your life. And here's the question. As you dream your dreams about your life, as you envision your future successes, 
as you consider your ambitions and you look forward to what your life may become, who is the star of your dreams? Whose face pops up when you envision your success? Who's it about? Because if I'm completely honest and completely transparent this morning, I have to confess to you that very often it's my face that pops up in those dreams. It's my face that plays most often in my visions of the future. We're going to go to the scriptures this morning and try to figure out what's created this problem and how we can find a solution to this problem. So if you'll open your Bibles up with me. We're going to be in the book of Mark. The book of Mark, chapter 12, verse 28 and following. Chapter 12, verse 28 and following. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, What commandment is the most important of all? Now, this isn't just anybody coming up and asking this question. This is a scribe, which a scribe is like the Jewish form of this old English word scrivener. Have you guys ever heard that word scrivener? All it means is somebody who can read and write. But because this person can read and write, guess what they do? They read and write. Because not everybody could do that then. Not everybody can do it now. But then, especially, not everybody could do that. And so this is a scribe, and his entire job, check this out, is to read the Scripture and copy the Scripture. And these guys are just notorious for their painstaking attention to every detail that they would write. I'm talking about if they missed one letter. It's not marked out. It's scrapped. It's done. It's done. I mean, painstaking attention. Now, when I was a teacher, if I wanted my kids to learn something, guess what I had them do? I had them copy it over and over and over. And you know what? It worked. They knew it after I had them do that. So do you think a scribe might have known what the Word of God had to say? Yes. And so this scribe, who probably already has an idea of the answer in his mind, Asked Jesus this question. And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If we were to go back and read that from the place it was quoted, it would read, it would read like this. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone. One God. He's alone, and He's our God. We belong to Him. He belongs to us. And this is not talking about a prohibition against polytheism, but it's talking about a prohibition against idolatry. Listen, Israel. If you're part of Israel, you have one God, and His name is Yahweh, and He stands alone. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And with all your mind 
and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right. Jesus, the Word of God, you got it right. You got the question right. You have truly said that He is one, and there is no other besides Him. And to love Him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So here's what we, here's what we have here. We have this guy who knows a whole lot of stuff coming up to Jesus and asking, What is the entire word of God about? And Jesus tells him, it's about the affections of your heart. And it's about this question above all. Is your heart affected more towards the Lord than anything else? And if that's the case about the entirety of Scripture, how much more is it the case about the definitions that we have of success? Because the fact is, ever since the Garden of Eden, here's what's happened. Every single one of us has rebelled against God. We've followed after our own desires. We've decided that we love the person we call me more than we love the Lord. And that's just a fact of being a human person. Every single one of us has decided that. That's why... When we sin, we do what we want to rather than what God wants us to. Because we love us more than we love God by nature. That's who we are. And that fact is written on our hearts. The scripture tells us over and over that our hearts are corrupted. Our hearts are wicked. Our hearts are selfish. Our hearts are turned inward. Our hearts care about us. And so when Jesus says that we have to love God with our whole heart, that's the last thing I'm able to love God with. I mean, I can love Him with my words. I can love Him with my actions. I can run to church. I can sacrifice. I can do all kinds of things. I can make it look like I love God by everything that I do and everything that I say. But when He starts talking about loving Him with my whole heart, I can't, I can't control my heart. My heart loves me. Your heart loves you. And so we find that the most important commandment in all of Scripture is one that we are entirely unable to obey on our own. That's why God sent Jesus. Because here's here's what Jesus does. When we come to Him and we confess our sin, when we come to Him and we say to Him, Jesus, we're corrupt. Jesus, we're unable to obey you. Jesus, I'm unable to be what God has created me to be. Jesus, I'm unable to love God as I'm commanded to love Him. I'm unable to carry out His will with all my heart. I'm unable to be more in love with Him than I'm in love with myself. Jesus fashions for us a new heart. A new heart that's able to love God. A new heart 
that's able to care more about God than we care about ourselves. And He places that inside of us. And from then on, check this out, a Christian is a person who has, through faith in Jesus, been supernaturally enabled to love God. That's what a Christian is. A person who, through faith in Jesus, has been supernaturally enabled to love God. So here's just a few questions that we need to ask ourselves as we think about success. Here's the deal. As you think about success, do you find yourself thinking more about the person you call me or about the person you call God? I'm going to ask it one more time. It's a painful question to ask because it's a painful question to answer. Are you with me? But as you think about success, do you find yourself thinking more about the person you call me or more about God? And if we don't find in ourselves growing more and more the ability to think about God in those moments, then I think we have to ask ourselves whether we've really been given a new heart that's able to love God. I think it's worth considering if, if we never think about God in those moments, do we really love Him? Have we really been made new? Have we really been brought to life by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Has that really occurred? And the next question that I think we have to ask ourselves, if it's the case, let's say we answer the first question, okay. If it's the case that we're thinking about God and our ideas of success, let me ask this. Are your ideas of success itself driven more around you personally or around the kingdom as a whole? As you think about success, do you find yourself thinking about what's going to happen in your life, in your family, in your career, in your relationships? Or do you find yourself thinking about how your life can contribute to the kingdom of God? Because I want to commend to you this fact that the new heart that Jesus places in us is possessed of the ability not only to love God, but Jesus says to love others as though they were ourselves. So if we've really been given this new heart, if we've really been made new, if we've really been made alive and given this ability to love, we've been given this ability to love not only God, but also others. And that same heart can't be divided. You can't have half of that. You can't love God and not love people. Because He commands us to love people. If we love Him, we'll do what He tells us. So those two questions, we just need to ask ourselves a little bit. And here's, here's the last question I want to ask you today. As you think about what it means to be successful, would you be just as joyful just as excited, just as thrilled if someone else carried out your idea of success instead of you. I saw a picture of this last night. It was awesome. This morning I got up and watched the video on ESPN about it. But it's hard for me as a Kentucky fan to root for Louisville ever 
But, but, but every once in a while, little brother has an opportunity to do us a favor. And last night, as they were playing the number one team in the nation, they had one of those rare opportunities when I was rooting for Louisville. Are you guys with me? Do you understand how this works? And so I'm rooting hard for them, even though I can't watch the game. And, and I'm just kind of checking the score every once in a while and finding out what's going on. And I had no idea what a crazy night it was. The last night that Louisville was ever going to play in Freedom Hall. Okay, they're shutting the place down. Record crowd. It's going nuts. They're playing the number one team in the nation. Rick Pitino is just in rare form. And it's crazy. And all of a sudden, one of their star players goes out of the game with a cramp with 16 minutes left in the second half. Dun, 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 right? I mean, no bueno, man. And as he's sitting on the bench, off of the bench comes this 6'4", corn-fed kid from Evansville, Indiana. And I don't even know his name, all right? Even after I read it today, he's such a nobody that I still don't remember his name. It's like it just can't stick in my mind. Hoosier, that's right. He, Tom says he's a Hoosier. That's fine. We can give, give credit to two enemies today. Louisville, Indiana, man. I'm liable to say something nice about Tennessee if I get warmed up good enough. Here's, here's what happened. This kid with 16 minutes left in the game comes off the bench, and he dominates single-handedly the number one team in the nation for 16 minutes. In those 16 minutes, Syracuse scored 22 points. In those 16 minutes, the 6'4", corn-fed kid from Evansville, Indiana, scored 22 points, leading his team, for which he had averaged 3.5 points the entire season, to a 10-point victory over the number one team in the nation. And if that's not enough, here's the part that stood out to me the most. As all this is going on in this video. I mean, the video is just so hyped, it's crazy. You need to go to ESPN.com and watch it. But as he's doing all this, he's catching alley-oops. I mean, the 6'4", from Evansville, Indiana. You know, you can't catch an alley-oop. He, he did it. Like, dunking on people, shooting threes is crazy. And the Louisville bench, they're all just coming out of their seats, and the coach is having to hold them back. And in the crowd of people coming out of their seats, going crazy, is the person whose place he took that night. Going crazy, excited, thrilled, ecstatic. Because he didn't care that it wasn't him in the spotlight. He didn't care that he wasn't the one bringing his dream to pass that night. He didn't care that at the end of the game it wasn't going to be his name on the video. And it wasn't going to be his name in the headlines. And it wasn't going to be his name at the top of the box scores. All he cared about is that his team was taken down number one that night. And so more power to 6'4 Corn Fred Kid from Evansville, Indiana. I mean, bring it, man. He was just in it, you know? So we all have the capacity to become impassioned about our own dreams. I, I hope that's true for you. I hope you have the capacity to become impassioned about your dreams. But I hope, I pray that if my face is ever removed from the vision of what God's given me to accomplish in this life and replaced with someone else, 
And God says, somebody else is going to step up and do what you think you're called to do. Somebody else is going to carry out this vision. Someone else is going to accomplish these dreams. Someone else is going to do all these things. That I would be just as impassioned then as I am now. And I hope that you would be if the same thing happened in your dreams. Because if we're going to have a godly, biblical definition of success, what we have to remember is it's not about what we think about success, but it's about who we think about when we think about success. And as long as our definition of success is driven toward the kingdom of God advancing regardless of cost, regardless of consequences, then we can rejoice now. Because that is one thing that is going to happen. And it can give us hope when circumstances look bad. When our lives become difficult, we're filled with hope. Because the thing in which we've placed our greatest affection, the thing in which we've placed our greatest hope, the thing about which we're most impassioned is sure to succeed. And that is that God will reign over heaven and earth and He will make His name known far and wide. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And every knee will bow and admit that He has been and will be the only hope of their heart. Regardless of where they understood that or when they understood that. On time or too late. So place your hope for success in Jesus. And in your dreams and in your visions, replace your faith with His. And allow the glory of God to figure prominently in your visions of success. And you will not be disappointed in this life or the life to come.